Welcome to Time Out with the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. I think it was the beginning of this past season where, you know, MLB posted how you got 11 women now on the field, big increase from the five we had the year before. And then there was that adage going around of now that you can see it, you can be it. So I responded because I hate that. I'm like, no, if you can't see it, then be the first. Because if we're always waiting to see it, we'll never actually see it. Somebody's got to be the first and show everybody else we can do it. I am Dr. Daniel K. Volker, a passionate educator, scholar, and former athlete helping to construct safe, positive, and health-promoting experiences for girls and women in sport. I'd like to welcome you to an episode of Let's Elevate Girls and Women in Sport podcast series brought to you by the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. Today, we are talking with Bianca Smith, a minor league coach finishing up her second season with the Boston Red Sox. She is the first African-American woman to serve as a coach in a professional baseball organization. She has also held positions with college baseball teams, Major League Baseball corporate headquarters, as well as the Scottsdale Scorpions of the Arizona Fall League, the Texas Rangers, and the Cincinnati Reds. She was a varsity softball and club baseball player at Dartmouth College. So welcome, Bianca. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be able to talk to you. I I did learn that you were originally from Pittsburgh, but I know that was a short period of time. Actually, I'm not. And I'm tr- I've been trying to get that fixed for the last two years. Oh. I'm not from Pittsburgh. Where are you from? I was born in New Jersey. Oh, my gosh. So they got Seriously. the timeline right. I moved to Texas when I was six, but no. I was born in New Jersey, lived in New York for a year. The reason why everybody thinks I'm from Pittsburgh is because when I went to Dartmouth, Initially, I was listed under my dad's address in Texas. By the time I joined the softball team, we had changed it to be listed under my mom's address in Pennsylvania. So when you go on the Dartmouth softball page, it says my hometown is Swickley, Pennsylvania, but it's not true. I really lived there sort of the year in between grad, uh, undergrad and grad school, and that's about it. But like not really at all. That's so crazy how it will just stay and it just stays with you. And it's so hard to correct, like just a fundamental yeah. fact of your life. <laughs> oh, hilarious. I've tried to change the Wikipedia page. And of course, I, I, somebody keeps trying to change it back. I remember when it first came out, my sister texts me and goes, since when are you from Pennsylvania? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's new to me. So now it's just sort of the ongoing joke. Well, yeah. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Hopefully okay. more people can hear it and they'll finally change it on my Wikipedia. There you go. Good fact checking. Look what we accomplished so far. So I, you know, I, I just want to sort of dive into, uh, you know, the professional baseball scene. What's the best part of coaching professional baseball for you? That's really hard because for me, there's no difference between coaching professional and coaching college or just coaching in general. Like, I just love the game. I mean, yeah, obviously the skill level is definitely different depending on what level you're at versus like D1, D2, D3. But other than that, I mean, I just love coaching baseball. Like I never went out to be a professional baseball coach. For me, it's like, okay, I'm either going to go go professional route or I'm going to go the college route. As long as I'm coaching baseball, I'm happy. That's wonderful. So it's just really a passion for coaching. I have learned that, you know, it was sort of between front office position or like actually be on the field. And you were like, Oh, hands down on the field, get me out of this office. So what was that like for you to sort of make that decision? And what sort of drew you to, um, you know, working with the players? So I definitely should have known the moment I actually wanted to coach was when I decided I wanted to work in baseball. And I knew I wanted to be in baseball ops. And the reasoning was because I wanted an impact on the roster on the field. 
And my first thought, of course, since I hadn't seen another woman coaching was, all right, if I'm going to have an impact on the roster, that means I got to be a GM instead of, you know, actually having a direct impact on the players. And, um, but yeah, subconsciously, I think I always wanted to coach. Even when I was the director of baseball ops at Case Western, I loved being on the field. I joke, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but I actually did this whenever I had homework to do and I knew I had practice rather than going home, I could have a four hour period in between classes and practice. I would go to the field and go into the outfield, take my shoes off and do my homework in the outfield. Wow. Like I actually just love being on the field. So um, that was a big reason, at least going from the front office to coaching. But there's also the aspect of just getting to see your players get better. Yeah, I love the relationships I build with our players. I love helping them get to where they want to go. I mean, I've got players, particularly like the college level, getting to see what they do with their lives after college, after their career is done, is awesome. I mean, I've got players who lawyers, doctors, work for the government, work for NASA. Like, it's so cool getting to see where they go and then keeping in touch with them after. I mean, it's crazy the first time you have a player who has a kid your first thought is like, you're not old enough for that. But then you, think, oh, wait, you actually are. That's so scary. Um, but that's a huge part too. I mean, just getting to help players achieve their goals on and off the field. It's a huge passion of mine. And I do the same thing even for, you know, non-athletes. I, I've told, you know, students who I've mentored trying to get into the game that if I never make it, but they do, I'm still going to feel like I made it. Wow. That's really cool. So this development piece, but it's not just about, you know, them as athletes, it's about them as people and and watching their journey and just knowing that you were also a part of that. Yeah. I mean, even it's a small part. I mean, we got players who they might be at the complex for, you know, a week, two weeks before they get called up to low A, but even just having a small part in that is really cool. Um, It's, I mean, when you're spending 60 to 70 hours a week with a guy, you get really close to them really quickly. Sure. It doesn't matter really how little amount of time you're with them. There's still some sort of impact, like knowing, okay, yes, I helped them in some way to get to that next level is a great feeling. Getting to see them accomplish a goal that they've been trying to do, whether it's their first home run in the pros or even just their first hit, like getting to be, that's actually one of the coolest things about being at the complex complex is we're usually like the coaches, we're the ones who get to actually see their first professional hits or their first professional strikeout. Uh, like the first professional stolen base, like mo- most of those events happen down at rookie ball and getting to see like the looks on their face when they finally get it, especially if they've been in a slump for a while, they've you know been hitless for five games and suddenly they get that first hit. Like it's, it's really cool. And just like being there for their special moment, which is also yeah. special for you. How neat. That's amazing. I I can resonate with that. Just being an educator, sort of watching students grow in the classroom, um, you know, that sort of thing over the course of their educational career. So I appreciate that for sure. So, you know, just sort of talking a little bit about your passion for baseball. I understand that you really learned that from your mother who just, by the way, hated the Red Sox, which is just that irony and that story is just it's it's so interesting. It's so funny. Um, and, you know, hearing some accounts that you could watch an entire nine inning game as a as a toddler. Right. So that meant something. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you developed your your passion for for baseball? Yeah, it's um, it's funny. You know, growing up, my parents would always say they actually have no idea where this obsession came from. (laughs) Yes, my mom introduced me to the game. She was a baseball fan, obviously Yankees fan. 
but I actually, so I don't, I think my first professional game that I actually went to in person wasn't until I was nine because my parents, we didn't just, we didn't go to games. I grew up in a football, basketball, and eventually soccer family. So my sister and I are really, as of right now, like the biggest baseball fans in our family. She's the one who she'll go to minor league games that are 40 minutes away with me. Like she'll watch games on TV with me, but otherwise it, it's, it's like pulling teeth, trying to get my family to watch baseball at all. Oh, wow. So that was definitely just me finding a love. And then as my mom used to joke, I take it to the next level. Like it really just becomes an obsession. When I find something that I truly love and am passionate about, I go overboard, honestly. I mean, and it's not just baseball. I've got plenty of interests that I just go full speed ahead with it. Um, but baseball just happened to be the one that I was also make, able to make a living out of. But yeah, that was one of those, like I taught, I actually was the one who taught myself the rules. Uh, my parents never taught me how to score a game. They never really taught me the strategy. I taught myself just watching and eventually playing softball. Um, I don't think I scored a game until I was in my late twenties, actually. <laughs> I think uh, that was yeah. the first time I, I scored by hand. Um, sure. So even like those little things that people grow up with when they're in a baseball family, I didn't have. I just loved it enough that I found ways to learn it. Was there any part of, you know, your mom being this avid Yankees fan, professional baseball fan, was there any part of that where, you know, you could talk to your mom about baseball? Was that in any way a model that contributed to you sort of saying, oh, I could pursue baseball as a professional career? A little bit. Um, I would say, yeah, she, I mean, she was a big enough baseball fan that we could talk baseball. She was one of the first ones when I decided I wanted to work in baseball. She was like, absolutely, go ahead, do it. I think that's mm -hmm. great. Um, both my parents were very, I mean, my dad is obviously are, are very big into you find what wakes you up in the morning and you make a living out of that. Mm -hmm. like, find what your passion is and do that for a living. So my mom knew, I mean, baseball was my passion. So yeah, make a living out of it. At one point when I was still trying to decide what I wanted to do, she actually recommended that I try to be a screenwriter because uh, I love writing. Like I love writing fiction novels on the side. Oh, so interesting. That was even a recommendation. I mean, not many parents are going to say, yeah, go off and move to LA, one of the most expensive <laughs> and go try to be a screenwriter, one of the most difficult <laughs> jobs in the country. But she was all, before I decided baseball, she was like, yeah, you should be a screenwriter. I think that'd be awesome. Um, so it was always, yeah, just find your passion. And that's how it's been growing up. Like it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter the title, didn't matter, you know, how much money you made. If you enjoy doing it, figure out a way to make it work. Interesting. So and that came from mom and dad. Yeah. It's sort of that fundamental, you know, finding that. And I think, you know, being able to have the attention span of watching nine inning game of baseball that young is a sure sign that, okay, I think she's passionate. I think she likes, really likes this. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't have the best attention span. If I don't like something, I get bored very quickly. <laughs> but you like this. So yeah. that's good. So, you know, as among the first women and the first African-American woman coaching in professional baseball, how have people within and outside the Red Sox organization responded? You know, how have in what ways have you been supported and challenged? Well, definitely more support than challenge. I mean, obviously, the Red Sox. Awesome. I mean, I think the first two weeks I was down at spring training. It was constantly I had somebody coming up to me. Are you okay? Like, do you need anything? Like, is there anything we need to do? And I finally had to say, all right, guys, I'm good. <laughs> if I have a problem, trust me, I'll tell you. Yeah. 
So okay, leave me alone now. Yeah. I'm like, just let me do my job. If I, I, I tr- promise you, if I have a problem, I will let you know. They figured that out very quickly. If there were um, any issues, and I wouldn't even really say issues. It's just, you know, the logistics of having the first female coach, you're going to have to deal through things. And a lot of those things you don't think of until they come up. Sure. But the Red Sox were very responsive. If there was anything I knew I could, you know, text somebody, call somebody and they take care of it. Uh, obviously had my family despite the fact that they are still Yankees fans. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I was shocked when my dad put up a Red Sox flag in front of the house. My oh. stepdad went out and bought a personalized jersey with my number on it for everybody in my immediate family, like my siblings, his girlfriend. Like it was, mm-hmm. And then they took a picture and sent it to me. And I thought that was crazy because those jerseys are not cheap (laughs) (laughs) no kidding uh so no they were really supportive i mean one of the first things when i told my parents i got the job the first thing they asked after congratulating me was all right do you need help moving yeah and it was and that's how they've always been i mean that's why i could do what i do i moved 10 times once in 10 years and i think i only paid for one of those moves wow because my parents were willing to do whatever is necessary. I mean, I'm like right now I'm actually in my parents' house. I joke, I throw my stuff in their guest room during the off season and then go do my own stuff. But I mean, they're basically let me live with them. Yeah. Coaching. And I'm almost 32 years old. Yeah. 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 Um, and then outside of that, I mean, I had plenty of people reaching out saying, congratulations. I had people within the industry and in the commissioner's office, other minor league, major league coaches reaching out saying, Hey, if you need anything, let us know. Um, had Red Sox fans reaching out saying how, how awesome they thought it was. I mean, it really wasn't a lot of negative comments. At least none of those negative comments were like directed towards me in a way, like on social media. They didn't tag me in a lot of that stuff. Or if they did, I just didn't see them. Sure. Uh, I know it was definitely out there. I had some college guys who got into social media battles that I had to tell them, all right, guys, it's fine. You don't have to argue on my behalf. It's okay. So they found a couple of negative comments. And uh, I mean, that's also part of the support system. I mean, I had players who have my back and were ready to fight anybody who said anything negative about me trying to coach. Um, even had one of the you know major league guys on the Red Sox send me a message and say, hey, welcome aboard. Can't wait to work with you. Wow. And I got to, you know, I didn't obviously didn't get to see the major league staff my first year because of uh, COVID, but second year getting uh, going to spring training like that was the first thing i did when the major league guys showed up was find this guy and was like hey thanks for the message it really meant a lot so we got to talk a little bit so yeah really not like not a lot of challenges when i first got the job um not at least not the challenges that people would expect sure a woman in this game i was i felt like i was really welcomed with open arms and it sounded like you had people who were advocating for you to squash any negativity when and if it occurred, which it's honestly, it's beautiful to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, and I think that helps a lot. I mean, usually one of the first questions I get about being a woman coaching is, you know, how do your players respond? And I'm proud to be able to say I have not, I haven't had a single player that has said anything at least bad to, to my face. Sure. Um, which is really all I care about. I'm like, as long as you're getting, as long as you're improving somewhere, even if it's with me, I don't really care if you don't like me as a coach. Yeah. As long as you have some coach on staff, that's fine. And as long as, you know, if it comes to a point where, you know, I'm in charge of something and you listen, that's really all I care about. I just want you to get better, whether you like me or not. 
But for the most part, I mean, every player I've worked with has been great. They've been supportive. I mean, the one of the I remember one of the first professional guys I told I wanted to coach Scooter Jeanette with the Reds. And he just went, oh, that's awesome. And we just started talking about like his grandmother was a huge baseball fan. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the players have been amazing. And for for the most part, yeah, there's some uh, some coaches I've definitely run into in my career who have been against this. But I usually just ignore them. Yeah. Like, I don't really care. <laughs> and then as far as fans go, I mean, obviously, we won't want to put a good product on the field for the fans. But as far as, you know, my job goes, my job is to help the players not to appease the fans. So I sure. never paid attention to what they said either. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I know that you've experienced some challenges earlier in your career in terms of being optimally trained, you're optimally qualified and being denied for, I, I think I read like nearly 150 in total, <laughs> maybe college, a professional, uh, it might be uh jobs in sport. I, I, you know, some with explicit feedback that, you know, you wouldn't be hired as a woman, um, and almost none of which were ultimately filled by a woman. Um, and so, you know, what do you think it's going to take for women to be given equal opportunity across the landscape of leadership positions in sport? You know, what is going to be the difference maker? Right now, it's having allies among the men because they're still the ones in charge. Mm -hmm. So we need men to be able to stand up, be willing to hire women in positions that we're qualified for. And then not just get us into those positions to start with, but to help us further our careers. Because I think that's another thing that's kind of lacking right now. Yes, we've got all these women who are now entering the game, but we don't really have anything in place to help us stay in and to help us keep improving and keep moving up the ladder. Yeah. And then once we get to those that point and we have more women in those leadership positions, they can do more as well. I mean, that's one of the reasons why like you see the same coaches getting hired over and over again by different teams. It's because they know people. Yeah. They know the ones who are in charge. And unfortunately, and thankfully, I mean, some teams have acknowledged this. We do have a tendency to hire people who look like us and think like us. Mm -hmm. But once we actually acknowledge that and actually try to get away from that, that's when we can start increasing diversity, bring in more women. And that's what you're seeing now. Um, it's just, yeah, women getting into the game with teams who... They're just trying to hire the best. They're not just trying to hire, you know, the typical coach, the one who's either played the game, uh, played at the professional level. Like at this point, it's who can actually help our players get better. Yeah. That is what we're looking for. So it's sort of like, obviously, we need to hire the most qualified people for the job. At the same time, it's pretty valuable to have women in these jobs so that they hire more women. That are people like them. That's sort of like the value of having diversity in the industry, um, any type of diversity. It's just a different think? thought process. I mean, women mm -hmm. think differently than men. I mean, I've come across situations even with the Red Sox where, you know, the other coaches are trying to figure out a problem on the field. And I come up with something that to me just makes common sense. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's so much easier. Why don't we do that? And I'm just thinking, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we do have a tendency to look at things differently. We approach things differently. And if you truly want to get the best out of people, you need to give them options. And that's exactly, it's the same thing with players. You want to get the best out of players. You can't keep giving them the same type of coaches over and over and over again. Because yeah. if it didn't work the first two or three times, it's not going to work the fourth, fifth, or sixth. So give them a different option and 
that's again how you increase diversity. That's why you see now major league staffs that have different backgrounds. It's not just because that they know the game. It's because this gives players an opportunity to have different types of coaches to go to. They can find the coach that works best for them instead of us expecting them to just work with whatever coach they're given. That's such an interesting perspective because, you know, the obvious thing is that we want to have diversity in the workplace because it's 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 the fair thing. It's the just thing. It's the right thing. And then there's this other part where we're actually probably hindering the development of people by introducing the same form of thought from the same, um, you know, types of people from the same cultures over and over again. So what you're talking about is like, wow, maybe that diverse perspective from a diverse person could be really valuable to help this player in a different way. Um, so yeah. sort of seeing what we've always seen um, with a with a new with a new light, with a new perspective, with a new approach. Exactly. I mean, that's my idea of why we should be going for diversity. Yes. I mean, it looks great. Yeah. We, we look like we're giving a bunch of people, a bunch of different people opportunity, but it's not necessarily that it's, it's just like you said, it's because if we really want to get the best out of a company, we need to have multiple points of views. We need to have multiple perspectives and multiple backgrounds. And that's how you're going to get the best. It doesn't help to have 10 people across the board who are exactly the same because what's going to change? Nothing. Interesting. Really interesting perspective. I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, speaking about allyship, how do men in this environment serve as allies? Because I, I, I feel like we've in some ways called upon men to, you know, support women in these ways. And I think some are like, I don't really know how to do that in the right way. <laughs> you know, is there a right way? You know, like what what should we be expecting of people when it comes to like being an ally? for women in these leadership positions that are just new for us societally, new for us culturally? Well, the first thing I would say, and I had to tell this to our coaching staff as well, is the women who are currently in those positions or currently either serving under somebody, listen to them, get to know them and ask what they actually want. It's one of the things that I... um, like, it's not a bad thing, but I did have to have a con- conversation with our coaching staff when I noticed so many players and coaches holding the door open for me. Yeah. I got no problem with that, but and, and like, I understand it's, it's a cultural thing. It depends on how you're raised, but then you also have to think about like, how was I raised? And I wasn't raised for that. Like in our family, it was whoever got to the door first. Sure. Like, why should I stand here at the door waiting for a man to come and open it for me? It has nothing to do with gender. It's just common sense to me. I'm like, that's just a waste of time. But <laughs> I could just hold the door for you because yeah. I got the first. Sure. Um, so I did have to, like, there's definitely some exceptions that I make because there are some guys who are like, they feel so strongly about it. Cause I've had guys who are like, no, my mom would be so mad at me if I didn't hold the door open. I was like, all right, fine. That that's okay. I get that. But in some situations, you know, one of the, one of our coaches said, well, I would do it for my daughter. Cause that's just what you do for women. And I'm like, all right, this is, this is where you get this interesting conversation. All of these little nuances, all of these things that men think that they do for women, cause it's respectful. Who came up with those rules? Men, not women. So you can't expect every woman to want to follow those rules. Not every woman likes the same type of flower. Not every woman even likes flowers. So it's kind of that idea too, like men going on a, a date and bringing flowers. Mm-hmm. 
again, a rule that men came up with. So, and I understand it back then when, you know, yeah, men led everything. That was back when, I mean, women don't even, wouldn't even ask a man out. But now, like, if you truly want to be an ally and you truly want to support the women in your industry, you need to ask them what they actually want. Interesting. Yeah. Really what women want, at least for me, it's like, I just want to be treated the way I want to be treated, not the way you think I should be treated. Because then that's not even, that's not respectful at all. Because mm-hmm. you're ignoring how I want to actually be treated. And for me, like in my job, I just want to be treated as any other coach. So it took a while. And I mean, I was trying to be patient as well. Sometimes I'd have to remind guys. And some guys, they, they started to kind of mess around with me. Like I've had coaches who they'll be walking next to me and they purposely start to slow down as we get to the door because they know I'll open it first. <laughs> but it's also because like they got to know the, like they got to sure. know person and they know one, I don't care. I find it funny. But they're also actually re- being respectful by not, you know, mm-hmm. rushing to the door and trying to get it before me. So players do the same. Like I'll have standoffs with guys at the door. And I'm like, nope, I got here first. You go. <laughs> so um, Oh my goodness. But I mean, I think like that's that's the simplest thing you can do right now is just ask ask the women what they want, what they need. And I've had, you know, coaches, I've had staff do the same thing for me too. Like, what do you need for us to support you? And like, really, just I just need you to be there when I need you to be there. Right now, I'm good. But when I need somebody, as long as you're there, that's really all I ask for. Just to have knowing that I have somebody I can trust, knowing that I have somebody who, if there is a problem, I can go to. That is the biggest thing. And then that's when they started to back off and just treat me like another coach. And that's all I wanted. I mean, like, I don't like making it a big deal that I'm a woman on the field. Yep. And I try to give this advice to other women trying to get into the game too, because I'll have people ask, all right, how do you ask about, uh, you know, how they support women and how they do this? I'm like, you don't need to really mm-hmm. like, don't, don't bring it to their attention that you are going to be the only woman. Got it. Cause if that's, I mean, unless that's how you want to be treated as the only woman, that's fine. But if you don't want to be treated as the only woman, then don't bring it up. So like you can acknowledge it, acknowledge the fact that yes, we're different and I'm going to have different issues. But then leave it alone until I actually need to talk to you about it. You know, there are obviously, there's no doubt, you know, so many girls and women still, they admire you and they admire your journey because of what you are representing. And I've heard you say that, like, if you don't see it, go be it. Can you just share a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'll share a little bit of background of where that came from, too. Okay. Yeah, it was, you know, I think it was the beginning of this season, this past season where, you know, MLB posted how you've got 11 women now on the field, you know, a big increase from the five we had the year before. And then there was that adage going around of now that you can see it, you can be it. So I responded because I hate that. I'm like, no, if you can't see it, then be the first. Because if we're always waiting to see it, we'll never actually see it. Somebody's got to be the first and show everybody else we can do it. So that's really like for me, it's I understand how hard and how scary it could be if you don't see anybody else who looks like you doing it because you might not think, okay, maybe I can't do it. But until I mean, I I tell our players this, too, until it's been like physically proven, scientifically proven, I don't really care how it is that you can't do something. Try the worst that happens is you don't do it. You learn from it. And maybe now you can learn how to do it, but at least try. And I know also I understand like how important representation is because some people also just don't think about that as a job. 
or just, just don't think of opportunities until they see somebody like that, mm-hmm. which is why I definitely understand why it's important. But we also need to start teaching kids that they don't need to see somebody who looks like them to do something. I mean, if I had waited for the first black woman coach, we'd still be waiting. And I, I know I'm that. also in a slightly unique situation too, where, I mean, I grew up in a predominantly white community, predominantly white school. I'm already, I mean, just being a woman is one, but then also being black. I mean, I'm usually the only one. So yeah. I grew up like this where I was almost always the only one. So I had to learn how to not, I had to see past just gender and race to do what I wanted to do. Otherwise, there's a lot of things I would have been waiting for if I was waiting for somebody else who looked like me to do it. Oh, it's fascinating. It just kind of changes. It flips the script because it changes your your framework and it begs, you know, kids to even ask the question is like, you know, where don't I see people like me? Yeah. I mean, I live my life by the why not. Yeah. Somebody says I can't do something. Well, why not? Why can't I do it? And again, I mean, I've, I've had even like simple things where somebody told me I couldn't throw. I had, I had one coach who told me because of the way I threw, I could never throw a curveball. So what did I do? I went out and learned how to throw a curveball. <laughs> Amazing. And now I can throw one from either 90 feet or 30 or 40 feet, you know, batting practice distance. Yeah. And I can mix it up. And I was never a baseball pitcher. I was only a, even a softball pitcher only for a little while. I never actually learned the grips. So that's what I mean. When people say you can't do something, well, why not? No, I love that. Those are powerful messages. And especially for kids, you know, it's to just really kind of shift their framework. So just a baseball question, you know, what free agency signing or trade move has surprised you the most so far in this offseason? Oh, Xander Bogarts to the Padres. <laughs> <laughs> That one, it wasn't a shock that he left the Red Sox. It was just a shock that the Padres were able to give him so much money. (laughs) I remember seeing that and I was like, where did that come from? (laughs) I don't know. Everybody was shocked. I mean, that's definitely been the biggest one. There, There haven't, I mean, there's only been a handful of really big signings. I mean, I know Correa just signed and that's another big one. But I mean, just considering how much you know, Xander means to the Red Sox. It was a little surprising, not only that they were, they let him go, but again, the fact that the Padres are the ones who were able to pick him up. <laughs> Deep pocket somewhere, somewhere. Oh man, no offense to the Padres, but like that's just not <laughs> to be throwing that much money to a guy. Oh my goodness. So we, we learned that and then we learned that uh, you are not from Pittsburgh. So let it be known, you are not from Pittsburgh. No, I'm <laughs> You're from New Jersey, from proudly. New Jersey. And I say this too, because I grew up a New York Giants fan, still am. Oh, and one of my nice. favorite players is also from Patterson, New Jersey. I mean, he no longer plays, but Victor Cruz was my favorite player growing up. And I was, I thought it was really cool. We were both from Patterson. Also, fun fact, my I'm actually third generation from Patterson. My mom and my grandmother not only were born there, they were born in the same hospital. And my mom oh my and I actually had the same doctor. Oh my gosh. Another reason why I I love being able to say that I'm from New Jersey, or at least I was born there. I know I grew up in Texas for most of my childhood. I was actually been here for 25 years now. So, now we have a reason, even more of a reason to like get this right. <laughs> yes. I remember once asking my mom, well, why didn't he deliver my sister? Like she wasn't born in Patterson, but she was born in New Jersey. Yeah. And I was like, well, why didn't he deliver my sister? And he, she said, well, he was too old by then. 
I was like, my sister's only four years younger than me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how funny. But it is still a pretty cool story to be able to say that. Yeah. How cool. Well, you know, thank you so much for your valuable time and all of your contributions. I just, I so appreciate your perspective. It's refreshing. It's new. It's, it's, it's fun to explore. And I just, I want to thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. From the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences, thank you for listening and learning from Coach Bianca Smith. An important question from here, what are you doing in the sports spaces that you're a part of to support the voices, the experiences, and the leadership of girls and women? Thanks again for taking time out with the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on Time Out, be sure to reach out at cahstimeout at mail.wvu.edu. To keep up with future episodes, visit cahs.wvu.edu. Stay active and be well.